Hey, Green Rush Nation, producer Shea Gunther here with some scheduling news. Unfortunately, we do not have a regular episode of the Green Rush this week, but happily, we do have a pretty great replacement show with this week's episode of my podcast, Marijuana Today, which actually features Green Rush host Ann Donahoe as a guest. It's a fantastic episode that also features host Ben Larson and regular Kieran Ringingberg, so make sure to give a listen if you have not yet done so already. We will be back with a regular episode of the Green Rush next week. And if you do want to listen to more episodes of Marijuana Today, you can do so over at mjtodaypodcast.com. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 360, 360 of Marijuana Today. I'm your host, Ben Larson, and we're recording Friday, May 28th, 2021. How you doing, Marijuana Nation? Better yet, how in the hell is it now the end of May or, or, or beginning of June, depending on when you're listening to this? I uh, hope you all here in the U.S. had a wonderful Memorial Day. Uh, it's been precisely one week uh, since our last recording, and yet... Feels like one day. Uh, maybe that's because I've only slept a day's worth in the last week. Anywho, uh, what happened this last week? Um, kind of a slow news week, it felt like, uh, which is, is certainly welcome. Ann and I were talking before before hopping on recording, and I'll take it. I'll take a little bit of a slower news week. But I'll tell you what didn't happen. Uh, Chuck Schumer didn't drop the federal legalization bill, uh, as we have all been hoping for. Uh but I did get another new pair of sneakers, so so there's that. And circling back on our, our, our leading topic of last week, the, the Mississippi justices didn't quite pull the fast one uh, that they had hoped on the Mississippians. Well, they did, but turns out people are actually pretty upset about the egregious and arguably unlawful overturning of a citizen's initiative uh, to legalize medical cannabis in their home state of Mississippi. Uh, imagine that, overturn uh, the will of the people and there's some civic backlash. Uh, no resolution yet, but thought it was worth the update. But it's all good. Uh, the Senate Finance uh, Committee Chairman Ron Wyden, who's been in the news quite a bit lately, is already looking beyond legalization and, and positioning for a post-legalization future. Uh, he stated this past week that when marijuana is federally legalized, it should be normalized in global commerce uh, with U.S. trade representatives advocating for domestic cannabis business interests. Ron, I was praising you last episode for your multi-pronged approach on cannabis reform, but uh, some might consider this putting the cart before the horse. I, I, I certainly appreciate the ambition, though. Can you imagine uh, going from the stranglehold of Schedule 1 to international exports? Wild. We'll discuss all of this and more when we get serious about cannabis business and politics, but I couldn't do it alone. So I'm joined today by two of my favorite people in the industry and movement. Seriously, even if you weren't listening to this, I'd still be ecstatic to spend my sleepless Friday morning with these two beautiful people. First up, regular guest here on the show and co-host of our sister podcast, The Green Rush, and managing director of KCSA Strategic Communications, the exquisite Ann Donahoe. 
Anne. Exquisite. Always a pleasure. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. And at the other corner of my virtual table, the founder of the California-based Ringenberg Law Firm, a full-service law firm focused on the litigation, licensing, regulatory advice, and commercial transactions for the emerging legal cannabis industry, my good friend, Kieran Ringenberg. Kieran, good to see you again. Likewise. And I'm just sad I, too, am not exquisite. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you the moniker next time. <laughs> How are you guys doing? Uh 2021 treating you all right was it a slow week for you too it was not slow but from a cannabis perspective it did feel a little slow and you know we were talking about this and it felt like normal in a weird way right like we're hearing these like bits and pieces of news there's nothing super earth shattering I don't know if it's because of the run up to the long weekend and people are holding off on some news, but it felt a little slow and I'm okay with that. Like you said. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, I, I was reflecting on last year when we were doing recordings, call it pre pre uh, election. And I, I, I do recall there just being, opportunities to be like sift through the news pick out a few articles here and there it's like oh we can build a story around this to this like just felt like six months straight of just like fire hose just it like, feels less ragey right a little <laughs> yeah, a, a little less, less ragey, ragey. <laughs> <laughs> you need that week every now and then where there's no bombs dropping and you can actually just focus on doing all the stuff you were supposed to be doing you know like that's mm. so that's that was this week and you gotta have at least one of those Every every now and then to actually accomplish what you're, you know, just hit baseline competence. That's that's where we're at. <laughs> that, that's so true because there was certainly plenty to do in the day job this week. All right, well, well, let's get going anyhow. Um, as we continue our journey through through the legalization and normalization of the cannabis plant, uh, it's a constant push and pull, or two steps forward, one step back, or loosening and tightening of the belt, whatever cliche you uh, suit your fancy. Uh, for starters, what is going on in Colorado? Uh, last week, uh, we mentioned Colorado's overreaction to, to Delta and its complete ban from both the, the hemp and cannabis supply chains. I mean, I know I've been rather outspoken, uh, more about the, the hucksters exploiting the loopholes to, to sell it in unregulated markets. Uh, but the compound itself is, is naturally occurring. It's a naturally occurring cannabinoid and, and hasn't really posed any, any known dangers yet. And, and is arguably more approachable than Delta. So, I mean, like why just completely ostracize a singular cannabinoid like that? It feels like a step in the wrong direction, but I digress. So we, we, we've talked enough about Delta in the past past weeks. So, so we'll leave that. But, but now the Colorado house finance committee approved a bill to enact limits on, on marijuana concentrates, place restrictions on medical cannabis recommendations and and require the state to study the impacts of marijuana on certain health outcomes among other changes. And, and that the, that's a (laughs) certain health outcomes. I I think they mean death because I I, I was reading through the bill a little bit and they're like, Oh, you know, there's going to be autopsies and like toxicology reports on everyone that commits suicide. It's like, what's going on? I like, what's your guys take on, on is Colorado having buyer's remorse? (laughs) Um, 
it feels what are your thoughts? very draconian. And I, are they worried about people overdosing? I, I, like that's when I read through, you know, some of the coverage, that's what it felt like. And, you, you know, you talked about these toxicology reports and um, it, it just it feels like they are not treating it like a drug. They're more, you know, if you're the other thing that kind of caught me was that. Um, you have to have all of these multiple doctors diagnose you in order to get the prescription. And, you know, you're going to treat it like a drug, treat it like a drug. I don't have to get multiple doctors to say that I have asthma and need an inhaler. Uh, this should be no different. So it's, it's this weird, I mean, Colorado was so great, <laughs> you know, in terms of being progressive and, and their, their legalization efforts. And this just seems... I don't know. Weird. I don't have a better word. I'm sorry. It's Friday. It's weird. <laughs> I think this is motivated by those entirely baseless concerns that cannabis and cannabis concentrates drive massive numbers of psychosis and mental health issues. I think that's what is the subjective motivation. You know, I, I don't want to speak the name of the individual who's the source of many of those stories who we may be talking about a little later in this <laughs> podcast. But if you, you know, if you had this idea for which, to my understanding, there is no actual scientific evidence um, that use of cannabis and in particular cannabis concentrates can can lead to significant increases in, in very strong uh, mental health outcomes, including suicide um, then um, th this legislation might make sense, you know, and and it, it doesn't because those things aren't true. But I think that's what this is about. So it's funny if you gather, you know, one of the requirements that you just mentioned is to gather, do toxicology screening on young people who uh, die by suicide to look for cannabis. You're like, oh, and then, you know, if you if you took a toxicology report of, of everyone who died in a traffic accident and asked if there was alcohol involved, you know, you, you like, what does that support the conclusion that alcohol was the driver in every instance? Like, no, no, obviously not. And so I, I'm one of my concerns is the way they're going out to collect this data is not gonna, is not gonna lead to reliable outcomes because, um, uh, it's entirely biased sample. You know, if you find, if you find high prevalence of cannabis use among people who commit suicides that you might reach the conclusion that there's a causal relationship, even though that's actually not a totally, that's completely invalid basis to reach that conclusion. The, mm -hmm. the, um, because there's sample selection bias there. The, the other thing I was going to note, which I, I hadn't noticed until this morning is the bill requires concentrates to be sold in gram units divided into servings of uh, no less than 10 equal proportioned amounts. And you know, I, uh, if we if you think about how that's going to work in practice, like I just think that's completely impractical for many of the concentrates sold. Like trying to imagine like live resin or you know sold in like cert, like in serving sizes, like that's just not a thing. So um, I don't know. Surely some very bright person is going to come up with some way to comply. That's not crazy, but I'll bet you ten bucks that it involves incredible amounts of disposable plastic that serves no purpose whatsoever other than to fill a landfill. I'm just, I, 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 I have a hard time when people really start focusing on concentrates versus non-concentrates. And it's just like you have this, um, I mean, it's a quantity of like, milli, 
like really what it comes down to, you're, you're talking about like how much active ingredient are you consuming? And like, there's this like huge fear about concentration, but like in medicine, don't we look for like highly concentrated medicine? Like you want as pure as possible. Like you don't want other like fillers and ingredients in there because like, like what is the benefit of consuming that into the body? And, and now we're in cannabis and like there and, and not in this particular bill, but like the, it's all feels along the same discussion. Like, Oh, is like 30% is like too high for flour. It's like, well, I mean, wouldn't you want it to be like 99%? <laughs> like if you actually were thinking about it as medicine, like, it, it, it's it's ridiculous. Like if, if you just consume that many cannabinoids in a different form factor, like isn't it going to be this, the, the same thing? The, the joke I have made a couple of times about this is, uh, you know, imagine a conversation where, where, where beer is like a new thing and people aren't terribly familiar with it, or maybe not a new thing, but something that, that is getting wide, more widespread acceptance. And someone said, you know, someone has developed this new form of alcohol that's highly concentrated and it goes from 5% alcohol to as high as 40% alcohol. They call it tequila. <laughs> 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 that sounds great. Can I try some of that? <laughs> As we record um, at 8.15 in the morning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's 5 o'clock somewhere. It's right. 5 o'clock somewhere. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's it's really sad. I mean, the exact language on, on the toxicology stuff is uh, the bill requires the coroner in each case of suicide, overdose death, or accidental death to order a toxicology screen. The coroner shall uh, report the results of the toxicology screen to the Colorado Violent Death Reporting System. The department then produces an annual report of the data beginning January 2nd, 2022, and annually each year thereafter. I'm sorry, like overdose death not due to cannabis because Lord knows that there are no overdose deaths because of cannabis that I know of. Um, and then, you know, we all know that cannabis sticks in your blood for for a month so like and if you consumed a month ago and like you decide to commit suicide or have an accidental death like it's going to be because of because of cannabis it just also seems like such an extreme violation both to you know the person who has who has died from suicide and their family like you know let them handle it the way they want to handle it and having this added layer of bureaucracy and invasion is just not the way to go about this, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, shoot. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. So where do we go from there, Ben? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So, so that's it. We're going to hang up the, hang up the mice. For the day. <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, Hey, look, uh, I guess we'll get a little bit less depressing. Let's let's move over to Texas. Uh, the the uh, House uh, had previously, um, you know, passed a bill that seemed like it was going to open up Texas. There, it would completely um, expanded upon the the qualified conditions uh, for for the medical program, and and seemingly was going to add an exponential number of of patients to I think. I think they have probably about 4,000 patients in all of Texas right now. So it's like highly limited. Um, unfortunately, that hit a wall uh, when it came to the Texas Senate. And and uh, the Senate decided to rewrite the bill pretty much and, and pass a new one. 
uh, which now has to get approved uh, by the House before going to the governor. Um, and so this this new watered down bill uh, moves the THC cap from 0.5 percent uh, by weight, which is in, always an interesting uh, rule, um, to 1 percent. So it goes from 0.5 percent to 1 percent. And then it adds cancer and PTSD to the qualifying conditions. So uh, pretty disappointing, uh, you know, for especially the operators in Texas, I think of which there are three, um, you know, I guess they're, this is just Texas dipping their toe a little bit further into the cannabis game, but not too far. Um, have you guys been tracking, tracking this one at all? I guess what surprised me the most was uh, the numbers and that, like you said, I think the numbers are, I think, between 3,500 and 4,000 medical patients in Texas, which is a giant state. And there are advocates that say that there are probably 2 million people that are eligible. Um, And it just, it doesn't make sense for especially for a state that is turning purple (laughs) Um, as much as, you know, some people may not like to hear that. Uh, And the fact that, you know, a lot of these, these patients are veterans and, and they have, you know, very explicitly said that we want this uh, and to, to not adhere to the will of the people. I I just think like, I mean, Dan Patrick has never been a, um, a proponent or a friend of the industry. Um, and this just goes to further prove he's just going to throw up roadblocks, um, which is really, really unfortunate to the people um, who are suffering and who are eligible and should have access to medical cannabis. Yeah, it seems to be mirroring pretty closely what, what goes on, on at the federal level. We had 134 to 12 vote in the House, and then it just hits this roadblock of, well, like you said, Dan Patrick, the, the lieutenant governor um yeah it's super unfortunate i i worry that texas for the foreseeable future is going to continue to be the lucy with the football for cannabis you know, <laughs> um, we'll get some flirting and we'll get some you know hey maybe but you know but i until there's political change probably probably unlikely to get too much progress is what the unfortunate reality seems to be yeah yeah. Well, on the bright side, uh, New Jersey, uh, the, the assembly approved a bill to kind of loosen restrictions on, on medical cannabis business ownership, uh, especially as it pertains to uh, women and people of color. Um, and so I think a lot of our listeners probably recognize that Jersey has been on a, on a journey of their own as far as coming up with something acceptable as far as a legalization effort goes, um, step in the right direction. Uh, so they're, they're aiming to counteract potential barriers to ownership. Um, and it, it, there's, there's some weird things going on here. Uh, Karen, I'd love to get your perspective on this. Uh, one, one bullet point that I pulled out is that the current law prevents any entity from holding more than one permit for a medical cannabis cultivator, manufacturer, or dispensary under the bill investors who significantly assist someone, so investors being like loans, uh, (laughs) uh, applying for a medical cannabis dispensary permit would be allowed to hold up to 35% interest in up to seven medical cannabis dispensaries, provided those businesses are minority business or 
disabled veteran owned. Um, but there was, there was something that was, the Cannabis Regulatory Commission would also be permitted to review the agreement between the business owner and the investor to ensure the terms are, so, so this is all like generally positive, right? They're, they're trying to protect the owner, but there's definitely, um, some measures here as far as ownership and, and not being able, like the, the business owner having to pay back the investor over time. Um, as I understand it, this is uh, akin to some of the social equity programs we have here in California, where it's an incentive to allow the investor to have interest in more than one um, uh, license, you know, license holder, uh, provided that their partner in each of them is, you know, one of these categories, women, minority, disabled, or veteran-owned, um, which obviously is admirable. Like that's a good goal because we, we cap, lack of capital is the number one issue for underserved communities being business owners in this industry and any other. Um, and, um, and so that's good. I would say my top concern is that having lived through this, you know, reality in, of these programs in California, there's great potential for lip service and shenanigans as regards whether the these arrangements end up truly serving the interest of the person um, um, receiving the the benefit, the the minority woman, disabled or veteran-owned business partner, um, or whether they end up just being uh, manipulated or used by the 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 financier. Um, and so I'm glad to see they're making efforts to you know kind of police and review that agreement between the business owner and the investor. Um, um, but, but by the same token, not to malign the great, the great garden state, I would be a little concerned about the potential for corruption in that process and manipulation by either just politics or just business in general, um, because it is a means where the investor could have, um, uh, undue influence and control and, you know, thereby circumvent the ownership restrictions by using or taking advantage of um, uh, someone and, and not really serving the long-term goals of that program. I, I, I did find the clause that I was stumbling around looking for. <laughs> so it says business owners uh, would be required to pay back the financial assistance they receive from an investor uh, within a period of t time determined by a sliding scale system based on the size of the loan. Um, the measure specifies that ownership would not revert to the investor if the business were to default. And so it, it's, it's, I, I got super confused because it, it, in one hand, they're talking about a 35% interest in up to like, you know, seven medical dispensaries, but then they're also talking about investors providing loans that have to be pay, paid back and don't exchange for ownership. Um, would it surprise you, Ben, if some of those 35% investors ended up uh, with some leverage in how the business is run and maybe their brand on the name of the store or <laughs> beneficial commercial relationships between the cultivation enterprise and the investors, other businesses, or, you know, like there's a long list of things. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I get paid to think creatively to solve problems and work, <laughs> you know, within the context of a regulatory system. And my mind is already spinning with all the things that you could do. And hey, I, again, I, it's, it's properly motivated, but these programs aren't easy because they have conflicting goals. 
The conflicting goal is to get capital where it's needed to support businesses that come from underserved communities. And on the other hand, to make sure that those businesses actually are being run for the benefit of the underserved community and not just the investor. Uh, you know, we have capitalism and uh, our system of capitalism provides great power to the people who hold capital. Like that's the system, right? And mm -hmm. so it's not easy to police. Um, and I'm glad that they're trying and they clearly have thought through this process and I hope it works out well, but I would be worried that it wouldn't. Well, as a native New Jerseyan, Karen, I'm insulted that you think that there's corruption <laughs> happening in my home state. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, yeah, yes, to all of this conversation. I think the other thing that is interesting is that the state has had, um, issues with the legislative black caucus, um, you know, at every step of the way here. Um, and on the kind of on the flip side, this could be a really good, um, carrot is the wrong word, but I mean, uh, to, to, to show that you know this state is going to address some of the longstanding issues um, with Black and Brown communities when it comes to policing, when it comes to um, you know the the fact that you know more people of color are arrested for uh, marijuana use, despite the fact that everybody uses it equally. So there's reason for them to be concerned for sure. Um, but I think that this, this is something that could go, um, a, a little, a little ways into helping, um, address those, those issues. Those are really valid and important issues, um, for, for the black caucus and the, the community in general. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's put a pin in there. Uh, and we're just getting started, but we're going to take a quick break uh, to hear from Shay and one of this week's sponsors who make this all possible. Shay? This week, we're glad to have the support of our friends over at The Atlantic Farms of Portland, Maine, which is known around town for their unique medical marijuana dispensary slash gas station where you can fuel up on all the things you need to get down life's road. Pop over to theatlanticfarms.com today to browse their extensive menu of top-notch Maine marijuana products, all available at hugely affordable prices. That's theatlanticfarms.com. If you do stop in, tell them I said hello. Welcome back, folks. As reported this week by Kyle Yeager at Marijuana Moment, a, a new report from the U.S. Department of Education, that's the federal government, uh, shows that there has been no measurable difference in the percentage of high school students who have used marijuana since before states started legalizing it. Hear the words that are coming out of my mouth, please. <laughs> uh, the, so the highest percentage of reported past 30-day use in the analysis actually occurred in 2011, again, before any states had legalized for adult use. Further, uh, there were no measurable difference 
between 2009 and 2019 in the percentage of students who reported that illegal drugs were made available to them on school property. Uh, U.S. Department, this is coming from the U.S. Department of Education's National Center for Education Statistics, NCES. Um, so can we put this one to rest now? Does this have we taken this argument away from the prohibitionists? Like, where uh, legal cannabis is not going to get the kids high, it's not going to kill the kids. <laughs> like, nothing has changed. Is, is that fair? Is it fair? Uh, yeah, I, it's logical. Um, <laughs> but that also has nothing to do with, um, how prohibitionists think or market or, you know, look, data will, we have data on our side, right? Data will, will ultimately win, but data isn't always sexy. And this just showing that, you know, nothing has really, this does, this does not affect youth. This isn't corrupting all of our kids. Um, is, isn't something that's, that's really going to break through. It's the, you know, the people who are, who are, like the people in Colorado who are looking for reasons uh, to to bring about um, nefarious actions or or horrible the quote unquote horrible things that happen um, when people consume cannabis and this isn't sexy this is this is what has been happening for a decade and more this so it, it, it like I said logical but it won't change anything in my very cynical Friday opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I have a slightly more optimistic view, which is that while many people, especially those on the other side of this debate, don't really care about data or facts, it's still another arrow to go in the quiver and make our argument stronger to show that cannabis reform isn't about allowing access to something that is non-existent or not available. It's about moving cannabis use from an unregulated illicit market with huge knock-on problems like crime and violence into a regulated market with huge knock-on benefits like tax revenue and, and safer products. Not about increasing use necessarily, but more about um, um, safety regulation. And so the, the, you know, the more data we collect to show that we're right on those issues, the stronger argument gets. I do think that the public opinion continues to move in the correct direction on the set of issues at a pretty dramatic rate. And part of that, I think, is because the data continues to confirm what any fair-minded pe person would already know. Um, um, so I agree with Anne that it's logical, and I probably won't make a huge difference, but it might make a little bit. <laughs> well, <laughs> and and another quote from the article says, an official with the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy's National Marijuana Initiative uh, went even further uh, last year, admitting that for reasons that are unclear, <laughs> youth consumption of cannabis is going down in Colorado and, and other legalized states, and that it's a good thing, even if we don't understand why. <laughs> it's, and it's uh, it, it's funny that the, the phrasing of, of those comments is like, everyone like a lot of like these regulators that they're, they're hoping and praying they find some sort of connection as to what's driving it up. And like, Oh, we don't know why this is not happening. And it's like, it's not happening. It's just not happening. And, and frankly, now all the adults are doing it. So it's, it's not super cool. So, <laughs> um, 
you know, just accept it. Uh, I, I do like being, I, when possible, like to, uh, you know, reference federal data uh, to kind of counter counteract some of these arguments. Um, although what we'll talk about in the next segment, uh, then they just start discounting the, the federal bodies uh, uh, as part of their argument, which I guess started happening, you know, with the last administration administration in general. So, but this isn't a political podcast, so we won't go there. <laughs> um, you know, th- this, uh, l- let's keep it on the, the youth thread. Uh, there, there's a interesting trend happening up in Oregon, Oregon and, and Senator Ron Wyden, my, my, my new favorite politician, um, said that the, the legalization of, of hemp is bringing younger generations of people into farming. Um, and you know, that's, he says that that's the real driver behind his cannabis advocacy. Um, he, he said that adding, uh, he said that he knew that this would be a huge bonanza for organ agriculture. So, you know, they're, they grow, grow, grow a lot of cannabis, grow a lot of hemp. Um, and, and when the, the crop was federally legalized under the 2018 farm bill, um, he said, he said further reforms are, are, are still needed to support the industry. Uh, but like, just, he's super excited about this youth movement to getting into hemp agriculture. Um, this is like a new talking point that I've heard. Um, you know, it's, is this the normalization of, of hemp and cannabis? Like we're, we're, we're just like going to see it proliferate across the U S and politicians are going to be happy that the youth are getting involved in farming and it's going to become a part of the future farmers of America curriculum. <laughs> like, like is, is this, the, is this our future? What he's doing, I think is really smart and he's making it easy for possible opponents of this to get on board I think when you make it about the economy, you make it about taxes, you make it about a growth industry, you make it about farming and agriculture. We were sort of founded as an agricultural, you know, country and, and we've certainly taken a turn since then. Um, so if we can bring about the message that this is a thriving industry that will bring revenue um, to to states that decide to embrace it. It will bring jobs to states that decide to embrace it. Uh, and as we talk about government spending, I mean, Biden, the Biden administration is, you know, there's these huge bills coming out of Washington. And I think anytime we can offset the cost of some of that spending and, and prove that we can offset the cost, I mean, a teeny, teeny, tiny little bit. I mean, the cannabis industry is small in the in the grand scheme of things um but that makes it an easier sell to someone who has been influenced by the war on drugs and the you know all of the propaganda that has come out it it all of the sudden becomes a little bit just more palatable i think absolutely yeah i guess i would add there is this interesting um a convergence or divergence in political ideology. So I would suspect if you were to take a sur- survey of 10 people around the country and ask them what types of folks would be involved in the cannabis industry, you would uh, uh, you would not think of a highly rural population, you know, like, and 
it's not it's not at least in California. It's certainly not true because you know a huge portion of our cannabis in California is grown in in Northern California, which in very rural areas. That's kind of the historic and and current day leader in many respects. Um, and um, and we have in this country a huge divide between urban and rural areas on political issues. It's really kind of become fundamental to our our political divisions. And interestingly, one of you know, one of the few issues that cuts through that divide is support for cannabis reform. Um, and uh, and so I see this trend that Wyden is highlighting, which is, you know, getting young people who are uh, uh, interested in agriculture, which necessarily occurs in, you know, less urban, more, more rural areas, um, and uh, as, as aligned with that, which is like, hey, maybe there's a way we can get you know, um, uh, uh, alignment um, between um, on this issue on cannabis and hemp reform and, and agricultural support to kind of break down those those rural urban rural urban divide that is you know at least one of the at least in my view one of the main sources of of uh, the political um, um, uh, Grand Canyon that's developed in our country. Yeah, it's um, I I don't know I I just love the this trend of of kind of like bridging the gap like in every way possible right and you know we 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 see it happening in so many different ways now like there's there's these different threads that are that are occurring where you know the talking I mean whether you, whether you like unions or not there's like the union unionization of of workforces um for for major retailers there's um you know california's pushing forward this this regulation to create you know well comparable to organic because we can't get the official organic certification um like these are all things that are just you know it's kind of creating it's like if we can't get federal legalization then we're just going to create this mesh network so we all believe it's legalized (laughs) um yeah, go ahead, Ann. No, I was going to say it would be interest. It will be interesting to see what happens to this web, um, you know, once federal legalization does happen. You know, we'll have to start deconstructing so much of what was built and and look back and be like, like it. We did it so it so it worked in this weird way. But we'll go back like and you know, fifty years from now, people will be looking and be like that made no sense. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it'll be really interesting to see. Well, unfortunately it'll probably take 50 years to untangle the web. <laughs> um, that's another Friday morning pessimistic view. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> we'll try to make, uh, well, no, reading through the script here. I don't think next, next, uh, segment's going to be all that positive, but, uh, we'll, we'll try to end on a positive note. How about that? <laughs> um, all right. We're going to take one more quick uh, break, uh, here from Shay and one of our sponsors whose support keeps the lights and mics on. And when we return, it's the return of Sabet. We're hugely grateful for the long-running support of our friends over Dip Devices, who just introduced their latest cool new product, the Little Dipper, which was recently awarded Best New Product at the HQ event in New Orleans. This mega useful handheld device lets you enjoy marijuana concentrates on the go, just like you're sipping from a straw. It's beautifully designed, massively functional, and is a must-have device for anyone who's either serious or just curious about concentrates. And best of 
of all the little dipper retails for just $29.99. That's a price point that can't be beat, especially when you consider that it's twice as powerful as similar devices. This thing punches above its weight for sure. To order your own Little Dipper or to learn how to sell the Little Dipper in your store or dispensary, swing over to dipdevices.com slash MJ today for a special offer. That's dipdevices.com slash MJ today. Big thanks to everyone over at Dip Devices for the long running support that helps us keep the podcast lights running. For our third and final segment, uh, the former arch-villain of the cannabis industry, and I say former because we have all but eliminated this man from, from our mouths until today, sorry, uh, has resurrected in his new anti-psychedelics form and seems to already be starting on shifting ground. Um, in their joint letter to the editor of the New York Times, Jeffrey Lieberman and, and Mr. Kevin Sabet uh, said the following... We support removing criminal penalties for use and increasing medical research into psychedelics. Period. Of course, uh, they go on to say <laughs> that they also urge a go slower approach, yada, 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 clinical trials for approval by the Food and Drug Administration do not take into account the unfettered post market use. So, you know, discounting the as, as Dr. Jahan Mark, who likes to say, the, the gold standard for, for you know, food and drug safety, um, goes on to say, blah, blah, blah. If the medical marijuana story is any lesson, it won't take long for the greater access to psychedelics to fall prey to serial entrepreneurs, F you, and, and pro profit seekers, uh, not well-intentioned physicians or patients. <laughs> He just keeps keeps going on talking about we hate to be a buzzkill. I don't think he hates to be a buzzkill. Screw you, Kevin Sabet. Um, but... And you've you've been working in the in the psychedelic space a, a, a little bit now and in, in covering it. Uh, what are your thoughts to this? <laughs> so Kevin wants to urge a go slower approach. And in the United States, research in LSD started in the 1950s. So Kevin, how much slower do you want us to go? Legit question. How much slower should we go? And there is a fundamental difference between the cannabis industry and the psychedelics industry. Uh, the psychedelics industry, certainly the sides that, that were, you know, the companies we're working with are taking a pharmaceutical approach an FDA approach. They are, they are engaging in clinical studies, um, that are approved by the FDA. The data that came out from maps a couple of weeks ago, showing the phase three data with, um, MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Those results were, amazing. And, and the fact that they're not embraced by the Sabets of the world is, is 
is ignorant and it's cowardice on his part. He needs something new. This is something new and sexy. And the cannabis stuff is kind of is kind of already chugging along. Um, and he's dipping his toe into the psychedelic space where he really doesn't understand the fundamental difference between how the psychedelics um, research and advocacy is happening versus the the path that cannabis has been on. Um, and they're different for very good and different reasons. And it, it just shows a complete lack of of respect and of knowledge on what he's talking about. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if you leave it up to the government to do the, I mean, the, how much research did the government do for, for cannabis over the years? And, and actually they did do research and then they just squashed it when it wasn't like part of their narrative. And, and I'm sorry, it's us predatory serial entrepreneurs and profit seekers that have actually been pushing for the research lately and spending the money to like actually prove what this, this plant can do. And I just, I just had a loss. And, and I think you're right. It's, it's at the end of the day, this is the career that Kevin Sabet has chosen and like Anslinger, you know, back back in the early 1900s, you know, when you lose one one source of revenue, like you have to go find somewhere else to to apply it. And so this is like prohibition all over. He's just, you know, Sabet is Anslinger, reincarnated. Except that the money he's raising is private money rather than government money, which makes it actually a little bit more pernicious because it's it's uncontrolled and unregulated. I mean, I I I think you're right. I think he sees. He's lost the fight over cannabis, and it's hard to continue to to rake in the fat dollars into his pockets to keep saying what he's saying when he's losing the battle so badly. So he needs to find a new a new war to fight. Um, and this one doesn't seem like a very good one because you know, like his mo is to say, "Oh, it shouldn't be overly commercialized, and we should do all this research." And you're like, "Well, yeah, that's." pretty much what's happening. So like, what does he want? You know, like what, what are we after? I will say there's one thing in his editorial, which I wanted to point out, which is, which is clinical trials for approval by the FDA do not take into account the unfettered post-marketing use. So wait, if what you're saying is we shouldn't do research and approve a drug because after that drug is approved, it might be abused by some people. Does that sound like something particular I, to psychedelics? I opioids. <laughs> I opioids. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so where, where are you at on opioids, Mr. Sabet? What work have you done in that area? Nothing, as far as I know. It's ridiculous. Oh, my God. And it's just like, yeah, why insert yourself like in a in a losing battle? <laughs> like you're, you're just like, go pick something that you actually have a chance at winning. Or maybe you just enjoy being a loser. I don't think he cares about winning. I think what he cares about is uh, getting paid to fight. And uh, so that's why he's looking for a new war. Awesome. Well, I don't know if we can roast him too much more. That was pretty fun. Um, <laughs> bring it, Mr. Sabet. Let, let's do this. Um, all right. Well, that, that wraps up segment three. We're going to take one last break to hear from Shay and one of our sponsors for whom we are incredibly grateful. And when we return, finishing moves. If you have a legal marijuana business, brand, service, or product that you want to market to the best audience in legal marijuana, then drop me an email at shay at mjtodaymedia.com. That's shay at mjtodaymedia.com with shay spelled S-H-E-A.
Welcome back, folks. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show, Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves is the part of our show where our illustrious guests can talk about anything they wish. So, Mr. Ringenberg, how about you? Well, we're hitting summer. We're hitting vaccination. We're hitting the end of this pandemic. And so what I'm thinking of as we as we hit the summer months is a lot of friends who haven't seen each other in a long time, standing on a beach or a backyard or a campground somewhere beautiful and passing a highly regulated, well-tested, entirely legal marijuana cigarette from one to another in, to recreate a ritual that has been around many years, but sadly missing for the past couple. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, if, (laughs) if you're still concerned about, you know, the pandemic and all that, I can also offer you a single served infused cannabis beverage (laughs) Uh, as a, as a replacement. If, if, if that fears you, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I was, uh, I got invited to this uh, social event here in Oakland uh, last week, and it was definitely one of the first social events, especially that was partially indoors. And I was just like, "Okay, are 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 we back?" And then, you know, it being the cannabis industry, there was definitely some people passing around some joints, and I was just like, "Oh, that's a that's a lot of com- comfortability." And I felt like I was in that uh, Saturday Night Live uh, sketch. I don't know if you guys saw it with Elon Musk, where he's just like. It's it's an entire sketch about like coming back out of quarantine and like the awkward conversations, the awkward interactions, like the fist bumping, the elbows, and like you know, it was like uh, that was me. I, I was that weird, awkward person at the event. So, um, but yeah, it is it is good to be getting back. And well, mine is so you made my decision really easy, actually. So on the heels of. Uh, Memorial Day coming up. This is kind of a cannabis adjacent um, call out here. So the Ubby Dubby Festival, which is an EDM festival in uh, Texas, uh, was held on April 24th and 25th uh, by legendary concert promoter Disco Donnie. Um, and he wanted to ensure a safe environment for the concert goer. So he partnered with Jobsite Care, uh, which is a client of ours. And don't at me because I'm in PR and I get to talk about this. It's my time. Um, <laughs> which is a workforce telemedicine practice dedicated to employee health and safety. And what they did was they, they tracked festival goers for two weeks after the fact. And they found that the overall COVID positivity rate among respondents in the two weeks following the festival was 3.28%, which was overall lower than the current rate of new COVID infections in Texas during the same time, which was between 35 and 4%. So if you are vaccinated, if you are wanting to go to outdoor concerts, if you want to share a joint with each other, a a regulated, um, tested cannabis joint, go ahead, have fun. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I'll keep it on the, the consumption strain here. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's any secret that I'm in the infused products, uh, category for, for the industry. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, just interesting crossover and in a lot of our discussion on the show is it was centered around kind of normalization and just this 
um, you know, the, how close we are to legalization. It feels, I don't want to, you know, get my, count my eggs before they hatch, but, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I'm recognizing these weird, like crossovers of industry and, um, you know, big beverage being one of them, you know, we see people like, uh, Scott Coors and Adolphus Bush, uh, getting involved in the cannabis industry when, you know, in years past, there was all this tension between big Bev and cannabis and like, who's going to eat who's lunch. Um, and now big candy <laughs> is, is really angry at, at, at people like, you know, using their likeness to sell infused products, which we've all discussed before. We absolutely probably should not do, you know, changing an S to a Z, uh, on Skittles, like it's not really going to get it done from a trademark perspective. So let's be professional about it. Um, I'm going to set that aside. I, I, I think it's the, 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 the narrative of, of Wrigley's being the organization that is, is suing, uh, I don't know if it's entity or entities in the space while Bo Wrigley has his cannabis company parallel that is doing a bang up job at, at growing a foothold here in the industry. Um, you know, as we were talking about offline does make for some, some interesting, uh, you know, holiday meal conversation, uh, you know, or maybe it's all part of the big game and owning both markets, but you know, it's just all these kind of conversations. Like, I don't know. It makes me happy. I, I, I like this kind of drama. I, if, if you want to call it that. And when I first entered the industry, I remember saying to myself, because, you know, we, we were starting a, a, a startup incubator at the time and people said, what does success look like? And I said, well, success looks like when we don't need to have a cannabis startup incubator because cannabis is everywhere and cannabis belongs in everything and it plays such an important role in every category. And so it's, yeah, you know, I think Mitch Barukowitz went on online recently to say it's it's not a hundred billion dollar market it's a it's a trillion dollar market and i don't disagree because like you know cannabis will be competing in multi multi billion dollar you know markets all over the place so um this is just kind of a, a symptom of that like there, there's going to be crossover everywhere um and so you know if wrigley needs to defend their trademarks in the cannabis space and you know so do the big beer companies all that kind of stuff like this is great this is all this is all great signaling. So look at that. I took I took a lawsuit and turned it into a positive. <laughs> <laughs> and Bo Wrigley has come out and said that he believes that that his company parallel will one day rival uh the 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 candy making um patriarch company. Oh. <laughs> all right. Well you know. Godspeed, Go Bo. Bo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do it. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a nice way to, to end this, uh, this Friday discussion. So how about a round of applause for our amazing guests, Ann Onho uh, and Kieran Ringenberg. Always great to see you guys. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you to Shay and the team for their production work that makes all of us sound so darn good and Overclock Remix for the amazing tunes. Thank you to all of our sponsors for their generosity and keeping our mics and lights on. And of course, thank you, our awesome listeners. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes so that other cannabis nerds can tune in and stay current on the latest industry news. Most importantly, Marijuana Nation, take care of yourselves, take care of each other. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Marijuana Today and that you have an incredible marijuana tomorrow. One take, Shay. One take.